I'm Bill Hemmer. I'm Dana Perino. I'm Chris Wallace, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Tuesday, March 10th, 2020. I'm Lisa Brady. As the world's fight against the coronavirus continues, so does the spread of sell-offs in financial markets. But what's the cure for Wall Street? It's not necessarily the virus itself. It's just the reaction to it by companies and consumers. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. It's not as super as last Tuesday, but today several states vote in presidential primaries, and one of them gives us our first glimpse at a historic swing state. Not only is Michigan important to these candidates, but the state is also important for the general election. And I'm Dr. Mark Siegel. I've got the final word on the Fox News rundown. A bad day on Wall Street isn't usually this bad. What I'm looking at is the Dow Industrials, a sea of red, ladies and gentlemen, an absolute sea of red. Stuart Varney on Fox Business as the opening bell rang on Monday. And just a few minutes later... That's a screen all white right now. All the screens just changed completely the moment uh, you saw that 7% drop. Fox Business's Christina Parts and Evelis was at the New York Stock Exchange as trading was halted, circuit breakers triggering an automatic pause, and the day ultimately ending with record losses, over 2,000 points down for the Dow, just over a week since the previous record was set, also driven by the coronavirus and its widespread economic impacts. Two of the latest examples, St. Patrick's Day parades in Dublin and in Boston, canceled. Large public events considered too risky as the world tries to contain the spread. We are going to take care of and have been taking care of the American public and uh, the American economy. President Trump making brief remarks Monday evening as his coronavirus task force held a news conference. He says the White House is working on payroll tax relief, help for hourly wage earners so they won't miss a paycheck if they're home sick, and small business loans. We're also working with the industries, including the airline industry, the uh, cruise ship industry, which obviously will be hit. But it's not clear how much help it will take to ease Wall Street's concerns about the economic impact. The mood here was definitely, I guess we could describe it as high tension early on. We spoke with Fox Business's Christina Partsinevelis after the grueling day at the stock exchange. You had traders that came in much earlier. A lot of them don't come in at 8 a.m. Eastern time, but traders were here early because uh, they were expecting and preparing for the worst. So close to around 9.30 a.m. Eastern time when markets were set to open, you had a lot of yelling going on. And then immediately four minutes after the markets opened, they all halted. And that's because there's circuit breakers that are put in place. If the S&P 500 drops 7%, then the markets get halted to stop stocks from continuing to plummet. And so they get halted for 15 minutes, and that's, you had a lot of uh, commotion on the floor. All the boards turned white, so they weren't showing red or green anymore. To exemplify the stocks, they went white, and traders were just trying to figure out how they were going to put in their trades once it reopened again at 9.49 a.m. Eastern time. So when you talk about a lot of yelling, um, it just part of a normal situation like that on Wall Street when things are fluctuating wildly one way or the other, right? You don't mean that it was any sort of a panic situation. No, no, I don't want to say that there's panic across the floor, but this is just a different scenario that we have not seen here, these circuit breakers that are put in place to stop traders from trading. And the noise level was definitely a lot louder. I'm on the New York Stock Exchange floor. It's noisy 
all the time. People just yell at each other. It's very common. It's very casual in terms of the conversations. But this time around, you had traders running around holding their handheld machines, where, which are they're your, they do use for buying and selling. Um, and there was a lot of movement as to what was going to happen once the markets reopened right at 9.49 a.m. And so that's added to the noise level here. Now, I know that they did not end up having to halt trading again, but closing down over 2,000 points, we're now perilously close to a so-called bear market, right? Yes, a bear market happens when markets drop uh, 20% off of their record highs. And so we came very, very close to that. That added to this this concern going forward. How are we going to factor in not only lower oil prices, which plunged 24%, but also the economic impact of the spread of the coronavirus? Because we still don't know how bad it will get. And because of that uncertainty, a lot of businesses don't know if they should be stopping their employees from coming in completely? Should they be keeping more cash on the sidelines in case things don't go really well? Should they stop investing in their businesses right now because it, it could get worse? So these are all a lot of uncertainties, which makes it so difficult to price in the economic impact. But it seems like the consensus is we are going to see more of a slowdown with growth because of the spread of the virus. Right. And from a business standpoint, it's not like we're trying to sit back and say, you know, oh, my gosh, half the country is going to get wiped out by this thing because still 80 percent or so of the cases are mild when people do get it. But it's just the fact that how do you run a business if people aren't out shopping, if your you know, employees are self-quarantined at home I mean, and the ripple effects across so many industries? I think it's an excellent question because you have many people that want to blame financial media and say that we are, you know, encouraging this panic. But businesses have to take a step back and say we're not they have to be proactive and they can't open their doors or they have to tell their employees to stay home if one person gets sick. And because businesses, universities are starting to close down, you have politicians telling people to stay home, that just adds to it. So it's not necessarily the virus itself, it's just the reaction to it by companies and consumers, which is why even Target said that they had to limit the sale of disinfectant wipes due to high demand. So when you have a company, a retailer coming out saying that, that just shows you that people are concerned. They're trying to stock up on non-perishable items, toilet paper, cleaning supplies, and companies need to be proactive because if something goes wrong and the companies that weren't proactive, then they're going to be in big trouble after that. This latest sell-off was fueled in part by plunging oil prices, their biggest drop since the Gulf War in 1991, falling under $31 a barrel. The president tweeting about that and blaming the market drop on Saudi Arabia and Russia, arguing about the price and flow of oil. Oil prices took a preliminary dive on Friday when an OPEC meeting didn't end well. So you have OPEC members, Russia's not part of it. Russia refused to cut production supplies. So when you would lower supply, that helps push up the price because there's fewer, think of it just like economics, there's fewer items out there, so more people would push up the price. But Russia did not want to cut production. 
They wanted to keep going with the same level that they were at. The OPEC members didn't like that, including Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia responded, too, by increasing production, so by sticking more supply on the market. And so when you have so much supply, and right now people aren't using as much oil, you have shipments that have slowed down, people are staying home, and there isn't anybody out there to buy up that demand. So there's this real-time oil price war going on. The two catalysts are Saudi Arabia and Russia, and that's further adding to the instability for the all the markets across the globe. And that's the reason why you saw oil prices drop 24%. There is an upside to that for consumers at the gas pump, of course. Yes, it could potentially be uh, you know, way more affordable when you're traveling, but you won't see that reflected in uh, gas station prices for a little while, because usually it takes several days, even longer, for a drop in oil to be reflected. But definitely in the short medium term. It could be a great positive thing for airlines too because gas will be uh, a lot cheaper, oil will be cheaper, uh, and for those who want to drive. But right now, you may not see the benefits. For those who want cheaper interest rates for certain things, maybe homes and car loans, there could also be an upside to this mess because there's another Fed meeting fast approaching. The next Fed meeting is March 17th and 18th, and the consensus on the street right now is that the Federal Reserve, our central bank, will cut interest rates again to add some stimulus into the economy. And when you cut interest rates, that makes debt cheaper. And so when debt is cheaper, you would hope that people would take out more loans and they'd spend. And that's pretty much what it's trying to do. It's trying to encourage demand, encourage people to go out and take that extra car loan or go out and buy that home because debt is so cheap. So what were the reactions like at the end of the day? We have this, this record single-day point loss. What, how were traders reacting on the floor? The sentiment on the floor at the end of the close was definitely a lot calmer when you compare it to how the markets open. And that's traders pretty much pricing in the fact that we're not going to have any circuit halters, uh, circuit breakers are going to halt the markets. We're going to get through this day and open again uh, possibly lower, possibly higher. Who knows how to guess that? But overall, it wasn't as bad towards the end of the day at the New York Stock Exchange here with all the traders around me. Are you hearing any concerns on the floor that this, what's happening with the virus, this could be the thing that sends us into a recession? A lot of people do believe that if the continued spread occurs, this could push us into a recession. Uh, you have um, economists, there was a note that came out from Morgan Stanley, they believe a recession could happen in the next two to three months. And that's because the spread is just continuing across the country and you're having people work from home. And so it's changing productivity levels for a lot of companies. They can't put out as many products because either uh, people aren't in the office to help them with it or because their supply chains are affected. Maybe they have some sourcing coming from Italy or some sourcing coming from China and they can't get those products because nobody's working at the moment or the, the shippers aren't working to full capacity. So productivity levels change. And then you also have consumer demand. People aren't they're expecting people not to go shopping as much, expecting people to avoid large malls, avoid uh, theaters, uh, not go out and socialize as much. And so a lot of those consumer-facing companies, like let's say AMC, that stock has been falling for quite some time. Live Nation, that stock has been falling for quite some time because so many events continue to get canceled. And so those are contributing factors as to why we may potentially head into a much weaker market, slower growth, and possibly a recession. But None of us can predict that. Nobody knows. And 
hopefully, <laughs> hopefully um, something will start to turn the ship around, so to speak, which seems to happen um, more quickly these days on Wall Street as well. That's why sometimes you can't say, you know, within history, we look back in the past and uh, we were down for X amount of time and then up for X amount of time. This time around, because of computers, because of algorithms, because we're globally so interconnected, these swings, the volatility is so much quicker. So we could potentially just start to climb over the next few days. Maybe they put out all of the coronavirus tests and people seem to be doing better. You never know. There could be a huge upside to this, but it is risky and it's not necessarily good advice for somebody that's not an active daily trader to, to try to bet when the markets will climb back up higher. Christina Partsinevelis with Fox Business at the New York Stock Exchange. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. This is Dr. Mark Siegel with your Fox News commentary coming right up. It's Super Tuesday light. Six states vote today and they're spread out all over the country. Idaho, North Dakota, Mississippi, Washington, Missouri, and the big one is Michigan. Important not just because it has the most delegates of all of the states today, 125, but because it's the first real test in a general election swing state. And both Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders have focused their resources there, Sanders maybe a bit more heavily. While data seems to favor Biden in the state, Sanders noted he beat Hillary Clinton in the primary there four years ago, even though polls had him losing. Sanders has gone after Biden in the run-up, saying President Trump won the state by slamming trade deals that have hurt workers in Michigan. When you go to the Midwest, we're in Michigan right now, you go to Wisconsin, you go to Pennsylvania, people want to know about your views on trade because disastrous trade agreements like NAFTA and PNTR with China cost this country over four million good-paying jobs, decimated communities here in Michigan. I helped lead the opposition to those trade agreements. Joe voted for them. That was Sanders on Fox News Sunday with Chris Wallace over the weekend. Michigan's governor and Detroit's mayor back Biden, though, recalling his support of the auto bailout in 2009. In Grand Rapids Monday, Biden defended his plans for health care. I was proud, very proud to work with President Obama to get Obamacare done in the first place. And it will stand. I'm going to stand firm against anyone who tries to tear down the progress and start all over again. Thank you. Now, Senator Sanders is a good man. He's Medicare for all push would be a long and expensive slog if we can get done at all. Biden leads on the delegate count so far after last week's Super Tuesday. Sunday in Grand Rapids, Sanders got the endorsement of Reverend Jesse Jackson, hoping to sway African-American voters. Even if Sanders loses Michigan, he told Wallace he is not dropping out of the race. Monday, Sanders addressed the news of the day, participating in a COVID-19 roundtable in Detroit. And while the CDC is telling people not to go on cruise, or fly domestically if they have underlying health conditions, it's hard advice for many to follow in an election year. Well, we expect all campaigns to take into account and to talk to health professionals to make sure that they are following their guidance, um, local health professionals and national health professionals. And we are doing the same here at the DNC. Soshi Inahosa is the spokeswoman for the Democratic National Committee. We are following CDC guidance to do things like wash your hands and make sure that if you are sick, you are staying home and you are not coming to work. And so those are the types of precautions that we are taking here at the DNC. And let me just tell you, I think that what is the most troubling about this is as we look at this um, crisis, we continue to see this president go to places like Mar-a-Lago and not necessarily address 
the health crisis that our country is in right now. And I think to us, it's very terrifying. So while we're taking precautions, I think all Americans right now are looking to this to this um, administration to for leadership, for leadership on the issue, and they haven't gotten it yet. And I think that, you know, people are very concerned about it. So let's talk about Tuesday. It is Super Tuesday light. Washington is a vote-by-mail state. They've already asked people not to lick the envelopes they mail back with their votes in them. Uh, but not every state votes by mail. And I'm wondering, are there concerns about turnout in other places because of this virus? Well, in a lot of places, you have had early voting, as you saw yet, or last week in California. People had been early voting for weeks before. And so um, we tell people that they should make sure that they are following the guidance of their local health care officials. But um, at the end of the day, you know, we while we had about 40% of the delegates allocated last week, we have um, a small percentage coming up this week, which will amount to a little under 15% as you look at it total. And we believe that everyone should make sure that they are following the guidance um, in their local community. Michigan is a key state to watch today. It's the first test of like a a real uh, general election swing state, it seems. I know Bernie Sanders won the state over Hillary Clinton in 2016's primary, but he wasn't running then against uh, Joe Biden, who keeps reminding voters there that, you know, he supported the auto bailout in 2009 as part of the Obama administration. Polling does seem to favor Biden. How important are the optics of of a Michigan win, given its swing state status? Well, at the end of the day, this is about getting 1,991 delegates, and whoever gets 1,991 delegates becomes our nominee. And so, of course, whenever looking at these states, Michigan is a place that is a delegate-rich state. There are 125 delegates at stake there. And just to give you a little bit of context, there are 352 delegates total at stake, which will end up bringing us to about 1,864 delegates allocated, which is um, a little bit under 15%. So whenever you're looking at these states and looking at these contests moving forward, um, it is important to look at the number of delegates and whoever gets to that number, regardless of how they get there, um, that is who our nominee is. Yeah, it's just it's an interesting state given the the trade policy, the the idea that that both candidates, specifically Bernie Sanders, has reminded voters in Michigan of trade policies that he uh, thinks has hurt them, that this president has passed. I mean, what what's your sense among Michigan voters and what they're caring about as they listen to these two candidates? Well, Michigan is is definitely a battleground state, and this is a place where the DNC has invested previously because we understand the importance of Michigan. So not only is Michigan important to these candidates when it comes to tomorrow, but this this state is also important for the general election. And I think that both candidates and the entire Democratic Party understand that, and that is why we have been investing in those states, in that, in that state. But But let me be very clear about Michigan. What we're seeing is Democrats have been elected up and down the ballot in recent elections. And I think that if you continue to see the engagement, and one thing that I'll be looking out for in places like Michigan and some of these battleground states moving forward is turnout. Because in a lot of these places, what we're seeing is record turnout. And record turnout for the Democratic Party in a Democratic primary is a good thing for the Democratic Party. If we have record turnout now, and if we continue to get our base and get voters and bring in voters into the party, then that is a good thing for us come November. We are seeing the enthusiasm for Democrats up and down the ballot. And we not only saw that in 2017, 2018, and 2019, but we're again seeing it during the primaries. 
Sanders told our own Chris Wallace this weekend that if he loses Michigan, he's not dropping out. And I'm wondering how important it is for the party to pick someone as early on in this process before the convention to, you know, coalesce around uh, one person and pivot to uh, the narrative of a general election fight. Regardless of who our nominee is, our party will back that person and will coalesce behind that person. We've seen this in previous cycles. We've seen where the front runner in this in this, in the primary process, is the person that the Democratic Party backs and makes sure that they, you know, go and campaign for 100%. One thing that I think is different from 2020 than has been in previous cycles is that we have Donald Trump in the White House right now. We have seen what Donald Trump has done to our country over the last four years. And Democrats, and when you look at polling, whether you look at Fox polling or whether you look at any other network um, polling that is out there, what you see from Democratic voters is the number one issue besides health care is that they want to beat Donald Trump. And so I think now more than ever, this party wants to make sure that they're in the strongest position possible in order to beat Trump. And that means that they will support whoever the Democratic nominee is. For, for all intents and purposes, it is down to a two-man race, even though I think my favorite Twitter comment uh, happened after Elizabeth Warren left the race and several people lamented the fact that the last woman left. Someone wrote, nevertheless, she tulsisted. <laughs> I thought that was pretty clever. But it is down, really, to a two-man race here. I know all of the pundits were, were very surprised at Biden's turnaround uh, after South Carolina and Super Tuesday. Were you surprised? What I'll say about the field, when we started this process, and we look at that de- debate stage in June of 2019 and July of 2019. What we saw is the most diverse field and also a large number of women on that debate stage. These women, whether it is Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Kirsten Gillibrand, Amy Klobuchar, they all paved the way for women to run in the future. They made it the norm this time around for women to run for president. And so I believe that um, regardless of what happens this year, and you know, we our nominee will be not only supported by women, but they will also make sure that they are bringing out women. These but were you surprised two- that Joe Biden did so well after every? You know, he, he even said himself, he's like, they said we were dead, and we were far from it. You know, even he seemed a little surprised that that he did so well. I don't think any of us can predict what is happening in this race, and I think that is you know, whether it is political pundits or others. Um, But what I know is that we have two strong candidates and we had a very strong field generally. I mean, if you talk to voters all across the country, they continue to say that they will vote for whoever the Democratic nominee is. So I feel good about where we're at. I, um, I believe that whoever ends up Um, with the most delegates in 1991 will end up being our nominee and that our party will back them. Finally, many of the voters that I've spoken to personally, specifically Bernie Sanders supporters, said they're not surprised at at Biden's turnaround, really, that the Democratic Party, in their minds, clearly got together and made their pick with Klobuchar and Buttigieg and Bloomberg all getting behind Biden just hours before Super Tuesday. When you hear that, what do you think? Because some people mean it as an accusation, like this party just does not want Bernie Sanders just like they didn't in 2016. Well, first of all, the DNC is neutral when it comes to this primary. And we have said that all the way from Chair Perez um, and and the entire DNC staff has taken a pledge of neutrality. And we will continue to remain neutral throughout this primary. When it comes to the elections and what happened in Iowa and Nevada 
and um, South Carolina and New Hampshire, that is ultimately up to the voters. The DNC has no control over who wins those contests, just like the DNC has no control of what the voters decide on Super Tuesday. The beauty about this primary is that voters are deciding, and that's how it should be. Voters should decide who our Democratic nominee is. And the job of the DNC is to make sure that there is a fair process and to make sure that our candidates can get their message across through debates and through other means. And we have done just that. One more finally, Sashi, is our caucuses done? Are we are, are we going to shift after this election to to think more about the, the caucus system and, and the three states left that do them? Well, what I'll say is that um, every four years we take a look at the process and we take a look to see what worked and what didn't work. And there's no doubt that we will do that again after the 2028 cycle. We did this in 2016. We lessened the role of superdelegates. We went from 14 caucuses to seven caucuses this cycle. And my guess is that they will look at the role of caucuses when it comes to the primary cycles moving forward, as they will, I'm sure, a number of issues. So I have no doubt that our Democratic Party will take a look at that, and it will be up to the 447 DNC members, and I'm sure a number of Democratic stakeholders to determine what happens moving forward. So, Gina Hosa, thank you so much for your time. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Find it now on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Dr. Mark Siegel. What's on your mind? It is almost 90 degrees in Singapore, and the humidity is almost 90%. There are now over 130 cases of the novel coronavirus there, and the country's officials are hypervigilant on the lookout for more. People in Singapore may not realize it, but the numbers of cases may remain small, not as much because of public health measures, but because the heat, the UV light, and the humidity may present a natural barrier to the spread of a respiratory virus. By comparison, South Korea and New York currently have temperatures in the low 40s and the humidity is very low, conditions conducive to the spread of respiratory viruses. In South Korea, where over 200,000 people have been tested, there are over 7,000 confirmed cases and the coronavirus continues to spread. The idea that many respiratory viruses, including influenza and other coronaviruses, follow a seasonal pattern is not a new one. It is based on the theory, believed by many virologists, that respiratory viruses travel farther on a cough or a sneeze in cold, dry air than they do with hotter, more humid weather where the water in the air causes the droplets to actually drop down to the ground. As the coronavirus spreads through our communities, with more and more cases unearthed by expanded testing, we are entering a new phase of containment where we emphasize mitigating strategies, including more frequent and thorough hand washing, social distancing, better sleep and exercise, diet and lower stress, all intended to decrease our risks of catching this virus, especially problematic with no available vaccine. We are beginning to practice cocooning with more and more people staying at home, not attending events, not traveling, and if there is a personal concern about catching the virus, self-quarantining. At the same time that we try to stay ahead of the virus with these extreme measures and we must prepare our hospitals for a possible surge of incoming patients, 
We also hope that as the weather gets warmer and more humid, the virus itself will fade. There is historical precedence for this hope beyond the fact of the flu season, which generally peaks in January through March here in the Northern Hemisphere and then drops off by April. Back in the fall of 2002, a new coronavirus emerged from China and rapidly spread around the globe, infecting more than 8,000 people with close to 800 deaths. In April and May, the world geared up for a large pandemic that never came. Many public health officials pride themselves on having imposed timely quarantines and closing schools and other places in Hong Kong, China, Singapore, Taiwan, and Toronto, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here restricted travel to these areas. Severe acute respiratory syndrome was mostly gone by the following fall. I have always been more inclined to point to the weather for the drop-off, or as I wrote in my book, False Alarm, The Truth About the Epidemic of Fear, the fact that the new virus wasn't as contagious as we originally thought. But health officials at the time were patting themselves on the back for having squashed SARS. The lesson from SARS is not that we shouldn't have prepared, but that the hysteria and overdramatizations and worst-case scenarios were completely unnecessary. Seventeen years later, we have forgotten this lesson, though we are still hoping for better weather to bail us out from a virus that is far more contagious if less deadly, than was SARS. Dr. Mark Siegel, Fox News. You have been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to Fox News Radio's hourly newscast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, visit foxnews.com. It's the latest from Fox News Podcasts, The Campaign with Brett Baer, with updates from reporters on the trail and in-studio experts. Brett keeps you informed on the 2020 race. Go to foxnewspodcast.com and download The Campaign with Brett Baer now. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.